Ah, stupid cat, go away. <laughs> she's scratching you. No, she's clicking the mouse. <laughs> Not that kind of mouse, Bingo. <laughs> yeah, no, she'll she'll sit on my keyboard. She'll click my mouse. She'll like, if my hand is on the mouse, it's like, clearly that hand should be on me instead. Aww. Aww. <laughs> I think Indy must have realized I was serious about recording. She's gone off to go sulk in the bedroom, so. (laughs) Well, part of the problem is that I'm sitting in her chair. So it's that, a combination of that and why haven't you fed me, even though it's too early. Right. All right. Well, I guess we're back. Um, It's been five minutes for us and three weeks for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a pandemic, so, you know, five minutes can feel like three weeks. So. Yeah, time has no meaning. <laughs> that's, that's my um, segue. Welcome to the Trade Waiters, and we are talking about the graphic novel of Slaughterhouse Five, based on the book by Kurt Vonnegut, which was rewritten by Ryan North and drawn by Albert Montes. I don't even um, know if I would say rewritten. I would say adapted. Adapted um, is a better. There's obviously yeah. like a lot of like Ryan North is very high in my esteem, and he did a fantastic job. But I thought there was so much Vonnegut in this. Oh, yeah. Like, down to the word, so... Oh, it's definitely still a Vonnegut book. <laughs> I, I almost felt compelled to try and reread uh, Slaughterhouse-Five b- before this, but I was like, that was not in the cards. But uh, I will say there is an excellent uh, audiobook edition narrated by James Franco, which is how I ingested Slaughterhouse-Five the first time. Yeah, I listened to the audiobook, I think, about a year ago. Uh, it might not have been a year ago because, you know, time. Yeah. But at some point, I listened to that. And it did feel very, it felt very much the same. Uh, and I'm sure that if I were to reread the original and go back and compare them, I'd see all the differences. And I'm sure there are many, but it didn't feel like there were any differences, which is, I think, uh, a good uh, mark of a, an adaptation yeah, it's my memory is hazy, but nothing stood out to me as, you know, like an in- incongruity between the two works. I guess we should talk about who we are, too. You know, we're doing everything in the wrong order, but that's definitely on topic. So I have a character building question for all of you. Uh, I hope this isn't too out of left field, but what is something that you would like to see adapted into comics, but that you yourself would not want to be the adapter of for whatever reason. Uh, And I have my answer ready. So maybe I'll do mine first while you think about this. My answer is uh, I am a huge fan of the fifth season by NK Jemisin. And I think it would work great as a comic. There's a lot of sort of visual stuff that happens um, and it's kind of in a distant future world. So it would be really interesting to be able to see all of it. And I even have ideas about like how it could be adapted in a way that preserves the main twist, 
which I won't tell, say too much about because this is not what this episode is about. But I also feel like I would definitely be the wrong person to draw that book. Um, like, I feel like that's beyond the limit of what I can draw as an artist in terms of things outside my experience. Oh, also, I'm Jonathan. Yeah, that is a very tough question. But I think I'm... Maybe this is partly because it. I was just thinking about it from our last book because uh, it got referenced. But I'm going to say Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. I would be interested in seeing how that works as a, uh, a comic book. It also sort of has a bit of a fractured narrative of like, you know, the, the character on Earth and then their memories of being raised by Martians and... Yeah, just sort of there's a little bit of uh, jumping back and forth in the same way that that this uh, book has or book and comic has. And I I, I don't think I would be the right author for or the artist for it, but I I would be interested in seeing how someone would adapt it as a graphic novel. So it's interesting because I really love Slaughterhouse-Five. And it was one of these things that I didn't think could be adapted as well as this has been, let's say. Like, I think that the, the writing of this and we'll get into that, like enhances the experience. So it's funny because like, I don't often read books and come away with it. Like, God, I wish they would adapt this into a comic. Uh, Cause it's not, it kind of like movie adaptations. You're like, nah, the book was better. Uh, <laughs> but if you could have an adaptation as strong as this, I would love to re-experience a canticle for Leibowitz. Mm. Uh, that's a science fiction book that takes place in the future and it's kind of post-apocalyptic and it takes place over multiple generations and I think that's something that could be really interesting to see illustrated to say like you, you can see how society is like evolving in a more in a more visual way and also like see the echoes through time of like motifs and things like that so I think that that's going to be my my vote but don't don't pounce on adapting canical for Lee Woods unless you're gonna do it right <laughs> okay all right so I picked this book so maybe uh, I should get the two of you to tell me what you think first yeah 10 out of 10 like I loved this uh I love this uh I had a lot of confidence going into it and I loved it even more than I thought I would Thoroughly enjoyed it, devoured it. I think it stayed true to Vonnegut. Like what really stood out to me in this adaptation is that it still felt like reading Vonnegut. I think the way that Vonnegut writes, like Vonnegut is one of these writers who I just enjoy the way that they write, where it's like there's a there's a flavor to the way that they put words down. And I feel like miraculously, obviously Ryan North is also a fan of this and it was very well preserved. So it didn't feel like reading something new. It felt like reading Slaughterhouse-Five again and better, uh, which is stunning. I'm very impressed. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, like I was impressed when I read Slaughterhouse-Five, the book, and uh, I I probably I should I should read more Vonnegut to be honest. Like any time I've read Vonnegut, I've really enjoyed it, but I've also only read a very tiny amount of his work, uh, a lot of his short stories more, and not a lot of his novels, so um, this makes me think I should read more Vonnegut. But similar to the last book we 
covered. I also feel like a uh, big shout out to the artist. Like I feel like Albert Montes, uh, who also does the lettering and the coloring. Um, oh, I thought okay. that too. I was, yeah. I was stunned. I, yeah. I thought, I, I agree. I agree with a shout out. <laughs> yeah. um, but I just thought um, Montes does such a good job of, I don't know, drawing in a style that complements Vonnegut. Like, I don't know. Mm. And I just like the experimentation too. like, we'll, we'll get into this, but just like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but if you want to like take a modern comic and then do a page that is set up to look like a 1960s comic, like, I don't know. And you put like the old newsprint texture in, like I'm a sucker for that. Like I just I eat that up. I'm just like, Oh man, it's like turned into an old style comic. I love it. <laughs> You can see the halftone dots. <laughs> yeah, and like looking at those pages, it's not just the halftone dots that make it look like that style. Like the the page layout, the way the text is, the the titles at the tops of pages. It's like you could see this uh, comic on a convenience store shelf in like decades ago, and it wouldn't feel out of place. Outside of that little section of 1960s comics which was amazing i also think that the rest of the book was pitch perfect somehow the style wasn't so pronounced that it was in your face where you're like whoa the style of this art but it wasn't it didn't read as like any other kind of comic like it, it wasn't like a, oh this is like a super indie scott pilgrim style or this is like a superhero style like it was it was a very unique style Super, super clean, perfect choice for this book. I mm. was really impressed. I guess I should talk a little bit about the, the creators too. Uh, again, we're doing things out of order, but <laughs> uh, time is meaningless. Kirk Vonnegut is, uh, was born in 1922 and died in uh, 2007. I have only read Slaughterhouse-Five of his work, but he uh, wrote 14 novels at least two of which won the Hugo, uh, Sirens of Titan and Cat's Cradle. And there's a lot of other writers that have been inspired by him. He's sort of uh, been a big influence on science fiction, I think in part because he kind of walks that line between science fiction and quote-unquote literature, whatever that means. He was in World War II. A lot of what happens in Slaughterhouse-Five is taken straight out of his own life. He was in a prisoner of war camp in Dresden during the firebombing and survived in exactly the same way as uh, the main character in this book. In fact, he shows up in this book as a character, as a, like a side character, because he was there, which is like really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and so he went back to the U.S. after the war and wrote a bunch of books and didn't write Slaughterhouse-Five until 1969. So decades later, and from what I read, it looked like he didn't feel like he was up to the task of writing about the bombing of Dresden before then. And I don't think Western audiences were ready to hear that story before then either. And we can talk more about that later. Uh, I looked up a bunch of stuff about the bombing of Dresden, which I think might be topical as well. Ryan North started out in comics uh, doing dinosaur comics, which is, uh, I think, still ongoing. Yeah, um, still ongoing. Which is like uh, an amazing feat in itself to write <laughs> a, a daily comic for years and years that has the exact same images and panels every time. And every day is an entirely new script. 
uh, <laughs> it was uh, a clever thing at the at the start and that it's still going is like just impressive uh he also has worked for um superhero comics he wrote some deadpool and uh squirrel girl uh, he wrote a choose-your-own-adventure book called Romeo and or Juliet, uh, which I haven't read, but uh, now that I remember, remember that that exists, I really want to. Uh, <laughs> he wrote How to Invent Everything, which is also a lot of fun. It's kind of nonfiction, but framed as fiction and is just, uh, as a fan of anything time travel related, I'm a fan of that book. Albert Montes is uh, from Spain. He's done a lot of work in Spanish uh, and also in English. He has a digital comic, which I looked up. It's not uh, like a webcomic. You have to you have to buy it, but it looks like it's totally in the same vein as his work in Slaughterhouse-Five called uh, Universe, uh, which is a, an Eisner award-winning uh, book as well. And yeah, just like talented people contributing to this book. Well, it shows. Um, it's definitely like a stacked roster. Um, and I'm glad... I'm glad that they chose such experienced people to handle this book because uh, it's one of the ones that's really important to me. And I think it's a book that's important to a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so like if, if someone is still listening to this episode and hasn't picked up the book yet because they're curious about whether it's good, like if they're a fan of Slaughterhouse-Five, I'm like, it's it's worth it. It'll, it'll make you happy to read again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll do like a quick summary of the plot too i don't want to spend too much time on the plot because i'm sure we've got lots to say but basically billy pilgrim is kind of a stand-in for kurt vonnegut with his experiences in world war ii where he's just this guy who is in the war and spends most of what we see of the story in a prisoner of war camp he's captured by the germans and this is near the end of the war so stuff is bad like there's no food they're like very much mistreated the germans are like they know they're losing the war and so like taking care of prisoners is not exactly top of their minds and then he's in the city of dresden when it is firebombed by the allies and uh he survives but thousands of people don't and sort of then he um, returns to the U.S. and lives his life and clearly suffers from post-traumatic stress. He is also abducted by aliens and meets the Tralfamadorians, who have no concept of the passage of time. Everything happens simultaneously for them. So that's what they're most interested about for humanity is that we can only see time one moment at a time. Uh, And they put him in a zoo, uh, which he seems relatively okay with, considering. (laughs) Uh, And eventually he makes it back to Earth. And uh, none of this is told in sequential order because that's not how Trell Famadorians do things. Yes. But it's also implied that that's not how Billy Pilgrim experiences time. Yeah, he is unstuck in time. So I think... I feels like it's kind of a metaphor for his post-traumatic stress where things don't happen in the right order. He might find himself back in the war at any moment. But also it's sort of given this science fiction structure, which doesn't do anything to take away from the gravity of the real life events that take place. 
Yeah, and this is one instance where I feel like the graphic novelization really helps this work. It's funny because like I recently rewatched Primer, which is another kind of vaguely confusing time travel story. And immediately after watching it, despite having watched it twice, I looked up like Primer Explained because it's like I wanted to see a bunch of diagrams to like remind myself. It's like, okay, this person was going back in time there and then this person was going back in time there. And I feel like reading this graphic novel adaptation is kind of like reading the book, but with a helpful flowchart. Mm. Uh, so the way that this is done in the graphic novel is that there's very distinct color palettes mm. for every single time period. And I feel like that does a really good job for helping keep the, the reader rooted in where you are, even when it's jumping around so much. So like you can turn a page and instantly be in another place in time, but the palette is consistent whenever you return to that place in time. So you feel less disjointed and unmoored about it. Whereas when you're reading it in the prose, it takes you a couple of steps to be like, oh, what? Because it'll say like, and then I was back in Dresden and this is what was happening. And it's like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a, a lot of characters in the, the book who they're all sort of very distinctive, but they don't do a lot. And I think because of the situations that they're in, and I think it helps to have them visually there. So sort of like, as like, oh, it's this person. Oh, it's this person. Even if you're not going to remember their name. Mm -hmm. And the, the comic also spends a lot of time sort of veering off into like diagrams and things like that, which are just a lot of fun. But also uh, every time that's done, it's like, oh, of course, this was the best way to convey this information is to have like uh, a paper doll cut out of this character <laughs> with all his gear around him. Yeah. Like, I, I know everything I need to know about this character now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I love that. Yeah, I love the additions of like, you know, they have the supporting cast page and they have the whole like timeline for Billy Pilgrim, like all drawn out, like and each each time period you're going to visit. They sort of have it like there's this time period and this time period and this time period. So these are all the time periods we're going to be jumping through, folks. You know, like I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I also love the visual code for like, this is like the red infrared space of before I was alive. And this is kind of like the ultraviolet space of after I died. And yeah. <laughs> like it jumps there yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's yeah. like just thrown in as like, not even necessarily a panel, just a stripe across the page. Yeah. Like, oh, he's connecting to that unstuckness yeah. without even any words or images. Yeah. But again, like it's, um, I mean, this speaks to, um, like Monte's like skill as a cartoonist that he's developed this kind of, I don't know, like these shapes and colors that get repeated. And you're just like, once you see it a couple times, whenever you see those panels with the purple shapes, you're just like, Oh, I see what's happening. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, just, yeah. I mean, the way that this jumps around in the way it presents things, I just, I love an experimental comic and that's kind of what this is doing. It's just playing with these like weird ideas of you know, even, you know, early in the story when um, Roland Weary is thinking in his head about, you know, years later, he's going to be telling this story to a woman over dinner and we we're the three musketeers. And there was this one like loser that was holding us back and like, and, and his thought gets interrupted by someone talking to him and it's sort of like his thought bubble is playing out like comic panels and then the speech balloon intrudes on the thought bubble comic panel and it's just like it's so like 
like meta layered comic telling which is so perfect for slaughterhouse five like if you're going to do slaughterhouse five you need to experiment with the medium of comics the same way that the structure of a written word is is experimented with in in the original novel right it's yeah i love those little experiments that are happening throughout the work and yeah it made it very satisfying to read as a thing in of itself as well yeah like it's it's such a uh, layered experience in that way I don't, I don't feel really happy I got to experience it yeah and I mean something something that stood out to me on reading this is I found it really interesting that like you know you have this story that deals with this war and all this death and and then there's you know there's like when he's in the zoo like they bring him like uh, a woman and they're supposed to procreate together so there's there's like sex and violence and like a lot of like i don't know graphic content but the way it's presented it's sort of self-censoring i found that really interesting like when when weary's talking about the ideal way to kill a man they use the caption boxes to block out the really gory stuff and like whenever i uh, they go to Tralfamador and the the man and woman are are sitting around naked it's they're naked you can tell they're naked but they're also drawn where you're not really seeing like you're not seeing them completely like their shadows there's well-placed arms like you know that they're nude but they're not just drawn explicitly nude and i, I know i just thought it was sort of an interesting choice that you have this really you know graphic content but it's handled in a way that's not trying to revel in that graphicness it's like you're letting the reader's brain sort of be as graphic as they want it to be in their own heads but the the stuff on the page is a little bit i don't know like self-censored uh to sort of you know pull it back a little bit to not just be so in your face with the way it's it's got this really charged subject matter if that makes it any... was probably done that way to to make it still accessible to younger readers hmm uh, Slaughterhouse Five, I think, is is pretty standard high school curriculum kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's similarly, like when it's words on a page, you can go to some pretty dark places, but still kind of get away with it, right? Because mm-hmm. it is up to the imagination of the people to to fill in the blanks. So, probably we don't know for sure, but probably they wanted to still make it something that would be accessible because reading about the war was important. Reading yeah. about these things that humans have done to each other is yeah. important. And uh, you have to stay true to what happened and not gloss it over, but still make it in a way that is not going to be unfairly censored, let's say. yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like it also suits the character of Billy Pilgrim, where he is so disconnected from the events he's lived through that he wouldn't necessarily feel the visceralness of all the stuff that has happened. Like he's just describing it. Like there's a scene where he's just like talking to what's her name, Montana, uh, where they're in the zoo and and he's talking about some of the, the, how he survived this firebombing. And he's kind of, if you look at the expression on his face and how animated he is, he's not feeling it in the sense of like, this is this was traumatic although clearly it was it's just like oh there's here's a thing that happened to me kind mm-hmm. of that just descriptiveness but then the subtext is like no this is all really really terrible yeah it's i mean i i um this is like as as an aside just as a comic creator but like i don't know i 
appreciated this approach that, I don't know, I feel like there's sometimes a conversation that comes up with people saying like, oh, like nowadays uh, we're so, you know, politically correct that we don't deal with like touchy subject matter that you just, you can't tell like a, an in your face story like you could in the nineties. And I sort of feel like reading this, I'm like, no, no, you can, you just do it in a way that's like a little more, you know, deft and a little more subtle it's like it's still dealing with like you know disturbing subject matter but it's handling it in a very sensitive way and i i I don't know i think that this is like to me like again i'm like this is like a really uh interesting wave like you you can sort of still sort of have a risque subject matter but you don't have to like implicitly draw it and lay it out broadly on the page you can sort of like presented in a more in a more clever way which i i appreciated this the approach to it well i mean it allows you to control the focus of what is what is truly horrible like mm. is it is it horrible that this guy's hypothetical junk got eaten off by ants or is it horrible that they fired bombed a peaceful city of hundreds of thousands of people like right. is it sensational that you can see a titty or is it sensational that the trafalmadorians like trapped two people in a zoo and had them procreate like what's <laughs> right what should you be thinking about right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and this seems like a good book to sort of approach questions like that because that's kind of what the book is for mm-hmm. yeah like i don't know just that yeah the overall i just think the approach was so great and i think uh i think you could learn a lot about storytelling from the way this book is is broken down and laid out um yeah can I tell you a little bit about the, the bombing of Dresden? Tell us. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's interesting. This is a, an event in World War II that I, I did know about before reading Slaughterhouse-Five, but it's not, it's not one of the stories about the war that is like top of the list of things that people talk about. So I think it's, it's good that there's a book and now a graphic novel that kind of makes this the focus but basically it was um, the firebombing of Dresden was between February 13th to 15th, which is, Hey, we're like, that's today. <laughs> uh, in 1945. Um, that's not going to be today when this podcast is released, but whatever. Uh, that's just a total coincidence. We're recording um, on the anniversary. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so uh, this is near the end of the war. The, the Germans are losing ground on both fronts. The, the Soviet army is moving in from the east. Like Dresden is closest to that front. So this, the Soviets will get there first, but it's slow going. The, the Germans are fighting for every uh, inch of ground. Uh, Dresden itself is not a big military target. It's uh, a big city with a long history and a lot of culture and a lot of architecture, but isn't really like a, a military center. So much like the, the story of why it's bombed is much like uh, Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki, where it's the, the plan for the allies is they want to speed up the end of the war by just devastating German morale, which firebombing a city and killing 25,000 mostly civilians will devastate morale and it does uh so they create they they drop almost four thousand tons of bombs on the city 
over the, the space of three days and it creates a firestorm. And what a firestorm is, is it's a fire that's big enough that it creates its own weather. So it draws in oxygen to continue to feed the fire. So there's a wind headed towards the fire that's drawing in more air and just feeding it until there's nothing left to burn. Uh, so uh, the numbers for how many people died, it took a long time to actually get solid numbers. Uh, and I think, I don't know if it's actually in the graphic novel as well, but in the novel version, the number that Kurt Vonnegut includes is not uh, accurate. Uh, he has a much bigger number, but later, like a lot of this news is just sort of becoming aware in the public knowledge when he wrote his book. And so like solid numbers didn't exist yet. Later scholars have gone back and said that it was probably 25,000 people. But, and part of the reason that the numbers were unclear is because the Nazis immediately after the attack were announcing like, oh, it was hundreds of thousands of people who died because that's like PR for them. They don't care about the truth. And then the allies didn't really want to spend a lot of time thinking about this because maybe it was a war crime and like maybe firebombing civilians is not that great. And so it was only like decades later that this became sort of like known and understood by the general public. And I, and that's kind of where this, when this book came out, it was like part of that realization of people of the full depth of what had happened during the war. Yeah, it's intense. And I think you're right, John, in that it's a story that's not as commonly told, despite being like a really significant and horrifying atrocity of which there were many. Because <laughs> it makes the, the allies look bad. And it's like, mm. easy to say, well, Nazis are evil, like, whatever. But uh, it's harder to say Nazis are evil, but our side committed war crimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, not not to get too off topic. But like, I, I do remember from when I was living in Japan, their outlook on nuclear bombs is uh, quite a bit uh, more intense and having visited uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and gone to the history museums like I think that yeah when you're in North America it's it's just like a paragraph in a textbook like oh yeah there's the war and we dropped some bombs and like it ended the war where you know when you actually are on the ground looking at photos and learning about the the ongoing decades of repercussions it really colors it differently and you know you sort of I mean with regard to the nuclear bomb, you start to ask yourself, like, why did we do two? Don't think we really waited for a response after the first one. We just jumped right in and did a second one. Um, yeah, it's it's a side of World War Two that we don't really think about and doesn't get depicted a lot. Certainly not in movies and broad media. We, we you don't talk about the the human toll on the countries we bombed into submission. Yeah. And it's like, John, you say like the Allies did this. Do you mean like the Americans? Like who specifically? Uh, it was the Americans and British. Okay. So they were bombing a city that was on the Soviet side of the Soviet front to help the Soviet army uh, because they were having a hard time like getting all the way to Berlin. Yeah. And I think like it's interesting because like the British experience of the war is also different from the American experience of the war in our cultural consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and something that still really struck me, like I visited Europe uh, several years ago uh, and I went to like some some important war sites. And one of the places that I went was where it had been shelled in France. 
and there were these gigantic holes in the ground that had just been kind of like become these grassy kind of divots but you could stand in the center of it and it was like 10 feet across <laughs> and you could just stand there and think about like the magnitude of impact that had happened over 50 years ago and like was still like this now. this physical yeah yeah it was still this like physical scar on the earth and that's something that we don't have access to as let's say everyday North Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it's really, really important to preserve these these stories and these firsthand accounts. Like even though it's 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 de-autobiographicalized uh, by the inclusion of Billy Pigram, I think this is still like as close as you're gonna get to a firsthand account uh, of the firebombing of Dresden here. And it's, mm -hmm. it's an important thing to preserve. Yeah, and I think in some ways it, works better than a straight autobio would do because it's a lot, I think it would be a lot easier to put yourself in Billy Pilgrim's shoes than Kurt Vonnegut's partly because Billy Pilgrim is so useless. Um, like in uh, like Kurt was actually a soldier. He fought, he was a scout. So if anything, the scouts that we see at the beginning of the story are maybe more like the kind of work he was doing in the war before he was captured but Billy Pilgrim is, I think he's like, isn't he like a, what is he? Oh, I've got to find know. it. Now. Like it wasn't even explicit. Like he was just some kid in the war. Yeah, they like don't. Some 18 year old. Like they don't, I don't remember it being explicitly explained, but like in the opening of the book it, or of this graphic novel, it gets into the fact that, um, you know, he's woefully unequipped. He, I don't know. He's lost all of his equipment. He's basically just walking around in a uniform with, boots and yeah, he's unarmed has no gun no other things that's why they do then the diagram of weary and all the he's <laughs> all of the stuff he's ever been issued and uh yeah it's like it's it's like a visual reflection of his uselessness is that like he doesn't even have a pistol meanwhile mm -hmm. these two these three other guys are you know in full gear with their rifles and he's just sort of like following them around and like not able to contribute much like yeah, yeah. He, he's a character who stuff happens to. He is not a character who does things. Yeah. And I think I, you make a really good point, John, where it's like Kurt Vonnegut very cleverly did it this way because he's like, I'm not telling you this so that you think I'm a hero. You know, he's like, I'm not a hero. Billy Pilgrim certainly is not a hero in the context of this work. He's just yeah. like some <laughs> idiot who got you know, swept up in this by virtue of it being a global calamity. And this is kind of what happened to a lot of other people like him. You know? Yeah. And I love the way that the book, both the book and the graphic novel kind of move back and forth between fiction and reality. Like there's a, a scene where Kurt is talking to like some friends about this book that he's working on. And the, the woman is like, don't do this. You're going to make yourself out to be a hero. Like, I don't, like, that's not, any, no matter what you do, if you write a story about the war, someone's going to come out as a hero. And he's like, no, I will definitely not do that. There were no heroes. There's like, what does he say? There's there's no part for... John Wayne. There's no part for John Wayne in this story. And uh, yeah, I think sort of that moving back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, like, works very well to sort of get across, like, there is real stuff. I was there. Some of this happened to me. This, there's this other stuff. Uh, I've never met a Trelfamadorian. Uh, that's fiction. 
but it all connects together. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I appreciated the inclusion of that at the beginning with sort of like addressing the fact that, yeah, that when he originally set out to write this work, that there was a, a real life conversation Kurt Vonnegut had with someone saying, I don't know, should you write about the war? And <laughs> like, I like that he kind of just addressed that right off the bat that like, um, yeah. this is not about the heroes of war. This is about the, the victims of war. war. Yeah. This is like how war is just always bad. It doesn't matter who you are, what side you're fighting for, war is just bad. <laughs> and it's interesting kind of thinking of the nature of time and how time weaves through this work and time affects this work. Like as we were saying earlier, like as the war becomes more and more distant, it's more and more important to preserve these kind of stories and bring them into the current day. And it was really interesting to think about this in a meta level where it's like Kurt Vonnegut has now died but this story can live on. Uh, and there was like a really lovely panel where it's like they introduce Kurt Vonnegut himself in kind of a meta way where Ryan North does. And he's like, Kurt Vonnegut was born here and died at this time. And he actually shows his his true epitaph uh, mm. on his head. I was wondering about that. Yeah, okay. No, it is. It is. It's on his real gravestone. Everything okay. is beautiful and nothing hurt. It's one of my... Which is like interesting because it's clearly a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's so Vonnegut and uh, <laughs> it's something I think about very often so I was I was pleased to see its inclusion in this book I think it mm. made it, it it added like yet another layer of like yeah Vonnegut has died but he's still here mm-hmm. yeah yeah and there's like other layers that are added because it's a comic um, like Kilgore Trout is a character in the original but in this version he also writes comics Mm-hmm. yeah that's true that's true although he does he does write oh now i'm trying to stretch my memory a little bit he may or may not write comics in other versions but uh yeah he is a science I, I know he's writer. a character in other books isn't he yeah. yeah yeah breakfast of champions uh focuses on kilgore trout and elliot rosewater and i think another one of his books is like uh god bless you mr rosewater i think so the characters and like some of the motifs like keep coming back and back in Vonnegut's work. That's, uh, that's fun. I like the idea of a Kurt Vonnegut extended universe. <laughs> it's true. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it felt so appropriate to have these like pulpy classic, like, uh, you know, Kilgore trout comics that show up and uh, just like, again, the attention to detail, like they have actual like newspaper print texture the quality of the print changes, the size of the font change. Like, I love the fact that most of the book is it's clearly got this nice sort of indie comic hand lettering. And then when it gets to the Kilgore Trout, it's double the size and it's clearly using a comic craft font. Like, <laughs> um, sort of has that real like pulpy classic comic aesthetic. I don't know. That was really great. Um, yeah. And I like um, Kilgore Trout as a character because he's, this like failed author and no one literally no one has heard of him apparently um (laughs) (laughs) he's kind of like it feels like he's an alternate universe kurt vonnegut almost and he's also just like a terrible person (laughs) yeah it's definitely like the uh, the the unsympathetic author insert yeah yeah Yeah, this, I mean, overall, like, this, I feel like 2021 is the right time for this graphic novel, like, just uh, this, like, fever dream where time has no meaning, 
all moments are happening simultaneously. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I found it really interesting reading that chapter where the um, American prisoners are brought in to talk to Howard W. Campbell Jr., the American Nazi. And yeah, then, very uh, relevant. Edgar Edgar Derby goes on this big rant about like what America is really all about, and I was like, "Oh, Edgar, you'd be so disappointed in 2021." <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a reason Edgar doesn't make it through the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I listen recently in some history podcasts, I've learned about the American Nazi movement, and I, that's another chapter of history that doesn't get a lot of coverage but like there was an appalling amount of nazi supporters in the united states in 1930 who were just like yeah that guy hitler he's got some good ideas (laughs) he was on the cover of time magazine yeah yikes i think this is the first time i've read a book adapted to comic form I mean, this might be the only time I have, but I also feel like if this is definitely the only time I've read a book adapted to comic form where I really felt like it brought something new to the table, right? Mm. Like, you know, I I am aware that Game of Thrones comics exist. I have no interest in reading Game of Thrones comics because I don't think that's bringing anything new to the novels or the TV show. Uh, where here I really did feel like, oh, this actually is bringing something new and interesting to the table. If you like the book, you're going to like this this graphic novel. Yeah, I, w- I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Like graphic novel adaptations are not top of my list for things that I want to see happen. I generally don't like them. Yeah. I like reading books when they're books. <laughs> and I like reading comics when they're comics. Yeah, uh, There's... I think yeah, there, I think there's like a marketing y kind of appetite for for creating adaptations like this. I know several of them have come through, um, and I'm not going to give a blanket statement. I'm sure like each one needs to be judged on its own merits. But I've read good ones and I've read bad ones. Yeah. I don't think every book should be adapted to a graphic <laughs> novel. It doesn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad this one was adapted. I'm glad this one was adapted so lovingly. Ryan North did a fantastic job with it albert montes did a fantastic job with the art similar to you jeff i would recommend this to people who were fans of the book but i also would say like it gives you an authentic experience of the content if you would prefer to read a comic than a book and that is saying something truly special yeah yeah Yeah, for sure like it's it would be interesting i'm not actually going to do this but it would be interesting to go back and read the book again and look for the differences because of how few differences it feels like there are. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it would be really interesting to sort of piece out why does it feel like it's the same? Uh, like, because there's a lot of effort and work put into that to recreate that experience. Now, also just bringing back to what we were talking about earlier with um, the art, there's a, one of my favorite sequences in the whole book is where we're talking about the way Felfamadorians write themselves mm. and as this is a graphic novel adaptation we get to see what a Felfamadorian comic would look like and it's just it's interesting yeah. it's like all these I'm panels so of like things up. you can't identify and there's no obvious order to read them in and the order you read them in doesn't even matter and it's like 
I would, I, uh, I'm not suggesting this would be something people would buy, but I would buy an entire <laughs> book that was but, a Tralfamadorian comic. Oh, it's interesting. I had, I'm glad you brought it up. I had a completely different experience with those two pages. Oh. Because, like, I thought it was a very meta commentary on comics and what they are. The way it is described as, like, each moment doesn't necessarily make sense. But when you experience them all together, like something greater emerges like huh. that to me is like such an essential description of a comic in such a mm. Scott McCloud kind of way. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, because technically comics, all comics are Trelfamadorian comics exactly. because they don't have time. You put time in them by reading them. Yeah. Each, each image was a brief, urgent message describing a situation or scene, which the Tralfamadorians read all at once. Step back <laughs> from the panel and you're reading the whole page as one. You're seeing all the moments, all the different panels all at once. You're experiencing all of those moments simultaneously. Yeah, and just imagine like a manga style uh, scene setting kind of page where it's like you have the image of the the wind chime in the summer and then a picture of a cicada and then like a picture of the roof. And it's only when you see all of these like brief moments put together that you're like, it's summertime in Hokkaido yeah. or whatever, you know? <laughs> aspect to aspect um, transitions. That's what Thank that you. is. That's Thank called. you. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Though I think, yeah, technically this is a non, non sequitur page. Uh... <laughs> mm, to us. <laughs> to us who don't know anything about Tralfamadorian life, but right. to them, it's more aspect to aspect, I think. Right, right, yes. <laughs> oh, man, I'm glad we got some Scott McCloud uh, comic nerdy uh, talk in. This is, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. This was just like a great, uh, great comic reading experience. I think I, it's been, honestly, it's been a while since I've like really like been gripped with a book that I couldn't put down. And like, this was one where I just like, I like read it until one o'clock in the morning and was super tired the next day, but I was just like, no, it was worth it. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely had me pretty gripped uh, where I was like every moment where I had like, Oh, I can read some comics. I'm very excited to keep reading this comic. Uh, so it was very engaging and really fun. Yeah, we've had like two really, really good comics in a row now. Uh, oh, there's, there's <laughs> just so up. many good comics out there. <laughs> you know, that's that's really that's really the main takeaway. It's like I I feel like we've we've mentioned this before on this podcast, but we're in some kind of golden renaissance for the graphic novel right now. Uh, and how fortunate to be here at this time and be literate in comics and have mm. lots of people to share them with. Yeah, no, I'm thinking now. I mean, this is about uh laura dean again not slaughterhouse five but the one of our very early episodes was this one summer and i think i spent a bunch of time gushing about how great this is this is the best comic i've ever read <laughs> and i think laura dean is better so oh, the bar is, is going up oh Ooh. man like wow. there's we're, we're not at the top yet like we yeah. mm. there's a lot there's whatever comes out by the time the u.s is broken up into factions and Billy Pilgrim is doing his speaking tour. Uh, like, there's going to be some great comics then. Yeah, it's, I don't know. They got the time. They got the timing wrong on on that because they're saying 1970. <laughs> they just need to say like two, 
like what 2025 when you guys has broken up we just (laughs) we just haven't admitted it to ourselves yet yeah historians will put that date at something that's already happened (laughs) Uh, i like that they kept that in that like we're like 40 no 50 years later and like clearly that prediction didn't bear out but i was like no keep it in it's it's part of the book it's got to stay (laughs) so it goes so it goes it's funny, like, I, I mean, reading the book, I always remember it, and so it goes, and so it goes. And then reading the comic, I, you know, that rhythm, it's, I don't know, it's so integral to the book, is the way that that yeah. though mm-hmm. it always keeps cropping up. And I appreciated how, again, they're having fun with the comic medium, where I think sometimes just, like, in the background, there's, like, I don't know, like, a tombstone, and there's a little caption box, like, and so it goes, like... <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, we got to acknowledge someone else died, and so it goes. Like, yeah, and, and you mentioned that like you haven't read more of Vonnegut's work. Like that's another through line in oh, her Vonnegut's right. work. So uh, if you're looking for the next thing to read as a someone whose interest may have been piqued, uh, I would recommend *Cat's Cradle*. It's more science fiction than this is. I read it a very long time ago, but I remember falling in love with. Kurt Vonnegut's work through this, uh, through this book. And uh, another one that he's written is Breakfast of Champions, which I would less recommend. Mm. Uh, It does focus. I will mention it, though, because it is focused on Kilgore Trout and Elliot Rosewater. Okay. Yeah, but it's got some hmm, dated racial interactions Ah. that Mm. make it less easy and less enjoyable to read and more difficult to recommend this is reminding me of when i thought i would try reading brave new world recently and i was like oh no i should have should have read that 10 years ago oh well (laughs) Well, it was just as bad back then but (laughs) it's interesting to reading slaughterhouse five uh because i never read it in high school i only read it at like a year or two ago how much of an influence it's had on other things that I really enjoy. Like I can see connections uh, with like the Babylon five TV show. There's like basically entire quotes in from this in Babylon five or uh, Douglas Adams was clearly heavily influenced by current Vonnegut. So strong. Strong agree. Yeah. It's always, it's, I always enjoy going back and reading the things that, were read by the authors I like to sort of see those connections. It was something I was talking about online with someone that it, I, I agree with you. I really like seeing those connections and I struggle to find that through line with the access that we have to older manga. Mm. Like it's yeah. so clear, for example, to see how Naruto, for example, was influenced by Dragon Ball. But going like deeper than that, it's like, you know, there's a history and it's like, God, I want to read that depth. I want to read that and understand how these tropes came to be and who did it first and who influenced Mm. whom. But I find it so much more difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. And it would be hard, even if we did have access to all those books in translation, which we don't, it would be hard to really experience it because we would never be reading them in the right order. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm not reading Kurt Vonnegut in the right order either, but at least I have more sort of an, uh, an intrinsic sense of where it fits in history by being from the same culture as the author, where uh, like reading uh, The Rose of Versailles, which I think was like heavily influential in a lot of other manga, I'm not going to have that sort of intrinsic sense. 
That's a good point. Yeah, it's intriguing. I'm I'm glad we have books. <laughs> yeah. No, this is yeah. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't know these stories otherwise. It's like magic. Yeah, yeah. I know, and I I mean, yeah, and I would just say as a as a person trying to create comics as well, I actually both both works that we've just covered, um, I found really inspirational. Like they made me kind of look at like wow, like look at what they're doing with layout. Look at what they're doing with restructuring the story you know like yeah there's things i would like to try to employ in my own work from what i'm seeing here just like it's nice to break break out of the sixth grid and and try some different things in in the way you present your story and i'm like yeah i need to start doing this (laughs) yeah i I need to read i've read both of these books once through and i read them both very fast because they're so good and i want to get the story from the page to my head I need to go back and reread them slower to sort of see how they're built. Mm. Cause I yeah, didn't really do that the first time through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both of them really merit that. I agree. I was just going to say another hard recommend from the trade waiters, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And another broad recommend. I would say that you don't necessarily need to be super, super deep in comics to enjoy this one. Anyone, yeah, or anyone can pick this up. Sci-fi necessarily either, or mm. even world war two, just like, yeah, it connects things together in a way that I think can connect for most people. So let's do some uh, shout outs. Yeah. Uh, I would like to shout out a German television show that's very twisty about time. And that seems fitting. It's called Dark. It's on Netflix. It's really great. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like super gripping and super compelling. And uh, three seasons that I blazed through super awesome stuff <laughs> yeah no I, i've really been enjoying it too it's if it gets an elevator pitch i think you could call it a very german slightly nihilistic version of back to the future i think that's fair yeah <laughs> which doesn't necessarily give it credit for how good it is but i think is an accurate description of kind of the general gist of where it's going yeah it's kind of like a. How do generations, how, how do decisions that you make impact future generations is mm-hmm. kind of the question that it seeks to answer. I need to go back to Dark. I I started Dark and then I started this bad habit of trying to like do other things while I watch TV. And I was like, well, I can't, can't watch this show that needs me to read subtitles while I do other things. Um <laughs> So I need to devote some actual sitting down, looking at a screen, only one screen time. I'm Jeff Ellis, and my shout out is, uh, I'm actually going to correct earlier, I made the statement that I haven't read any other book adaptations. Um, I read The Handmaid's Tale by Renee Nolte. That is a fantastic adaptation uh, of a novel into comic form. So if you want to read two good uh, books turned into comics. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale and Slaughterhouse Five are both good recommendations. Uh, okay, I'm gonna shout out the movie Arrival because I am convinced that the heptapods in Arrival are basically Tralfamadorians. They are very similar. And That's I- true. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. I didn't, that's not an idea I came up with. I read that somewhere. I don't know whether the author of the book or the short story that the movie is based on has actually confirmed that or not, but it seems very likely. 
And it's also just a really good movie. I like it. It's fun. It's it's about language and time travel. So like that's someone wrote that for me. <laughs> yes, I I seem to recall uh, when that movie first was announced, talking to you and saying, "So there's a movie about aliens visiting Earth," and you're like, mm. "I'm like," and they bring in a linguist, and you're like, "I'm sold." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so our what's our next book going to be? Jam, yours is next. All right, then it's going to be Meal by Blue Delaquante. Looking forward to it. Okay, so uh, we'd like to thank Sleuth for the, the music. You can find the Trade Raiders on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Tumblr, possibly other places, but they are those are the ones that I actually know despite the, being the one who put them all those places. I'll, we can do some, some research and see if there's other options, but for now, that's good. I think Google Play turned into something else, so I think our episodes are still somewhere. I forget music, what it turned but, into. Uh, there's, there's YouTube music, and there's also, like, Google Podcasts. Yeah, we're not, on Google, we're not on Google Music or YouTube Music or whatever. We might be on the other one. I think we're on Google Podcasts. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> if you look for trade waiters on Google Podcast, there's a 50-50 chance you might find us. Yeah. <laughs> you might want to edit this ending. Anyways. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it's happened. It's it right. has always happened this way. All right. Well thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Enjoy your comics.